The worst part about uh, being here this morning is that Josh is not. And uh, I really miss him and always love being able to be a part of what God's doing through Charles River. And uh, for some of you, I know uh, meeting some of you, this is a first time for you. And you definitely need to come back and be able to get to know and listen into, to the uh, heartbeat of this church through Josh. Uh, I was also, uh, you'll have to meet the, the newest member, three-week-old Eliana here. You're going to have to meet her somewhere this morning. Beautiful little baby girl. And a great, great, uh, great excitement there. And with all of that, I uh, want to take you back to the very beginning of the new year. And as I'm going back to the first of the new year, Gail and I always do a couple of things. Either the last few days of the old year or the first few days of the new year. You probably do the same. We kind of pull out of the fast lane of our lives and settle in and start talking about, okay, this is kind of looking to the new year, lean into it. And we have all kinds of conversations and we try to figure out, hey, what's the new year potentially going to be like? We pray through some things. This year we did a little uh, kind of interesting thing. We listened into a message uh, by Jeff Henderson. Uh, Jeff Henderson online, we streamed it. He happens to be one of the teaching pastors at North Point Church down in Alpharetta, Georgia. And as I'm listening to him, he starts raising some very important questions. And he starts talking about how that usually we approach the new year in one of two ways. There are those that are kind of dreamers. They move into the new year with the ideal of the big wow of what's going to happen in the new year. And then there's another group of people. They're called the realist. And they're the type of people that ask all the menacing questions to dreamers. And instead of saying, wow, they say, how? How is that really going to happen? Are you kidding me? You really think that's going to take place? And they can really be helpful to each other. They can also be discouraging to each other. But then he went on to say, there's an important question you're probably asking yourself as you begin a new year, and that is, what is possible for you in 2016? And so he kind of played around with that for a little bit, and he talked, and he said, but there's one more, much more important question. And he said, the much more important question is, what does God think is possible for you in 2016? And instead of just kind of talking in vague, kind of, you know, out there terms, ethereal kind of concepts, he said, let me show you what God thinks is possible for you. And he opened up Galatians 5, and 23, and he says, this is what God thinks is possible for you. The fruit of the Spirit. And he began to describe that as, that is what God says, that's my purpose and plan for your life. And then he began to kind of walk through some of them. And then he did something very interesting that Gail and I really listened into. It was something we had never heard before. And he talked about how that it, the fruit of the Spirit isn't some exhaustive list of everything that God longs to see happen in our lives as fruit. But instead, it's kind of the top nine. And it's kind of that uh, description of the top nine. If you're going to focus on anything, here's the top nine. And then he made this challenge to everyone in the listening audience. The audience, as he asked everyone to say, don't try to take all nine in at one time. Just pick one. Just pick one and say, for all of 2016, that's, that's the one I'm going to really focus on this year and, and seeking to allow God to produce that in my life. And so he began to going through them and he challenged everyone to do it. And he did something very interesting. He said, instead of you trying to figure it out, invite other people who live on the other side of you and ask them what they think should be the one you should work on. I thought it was very interesting. 
So Gail and I had probably a two or three hour discussion about that. And so at the end of it, she was asking me, I was asking her. And so she tagged. She said, you know, 2016 for me. And I was very surprised when she said this, because if any of you know Gail, this, I'm thinking, ah, this is already a given for you. And she chose kindness. And I was really kind of, and then she began to talk to me why she would have said that. I said, I would have never chosen that for you. But after having you explain to me, I get that. And she said, so what's yours? And I was wrestling between two or three, and the one that I said was joy, an inner gladness. And so we had to, so that's been all throughout the course this year. Every once in a while, I go, so how's the kindness going? And every once in a while, she say, I think you need to do some work on the joy factor. And it's just been kind of a fun experience for us, and the whole challenge was, which one? But the big thing that shaped us was, this is what God thinks is possible for you. So, if you were to take a look at that list of nine, and you've been listening to various ones, we're going to take a look at another one this morning, which one would you choose? Which, would, which one would the people living on the other side of you? That's a little dangerous. So of the nine fruit of the Spirit, which one do you think would be the one I really kind of need to choose? So look at it for just a moment. Let's read through these verses that have now become familiar through the summer. And hey, the kids put it together pretty cool this morning. But in Galatians 5, 23, summer fruit, these two verses... Why don't you just read it in unison with me off the screen? Let's just read it together. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. It doesn't get any better than that. Now, as you're, you're going through these particular verses and you've been walking through this series over the summer, let me just kind of back up for a minute and do a little bit of clarification because I think sometimes when we get into this whole subject about the fruit of the Spirit, we just kind of forget the entire context of what's being shared here. In the verses that precede this, in this particular portion where Paul's writing to a group of people who've really gotten off track, he reminds them, he says, I'm going to give you 15 one-word adjectives that describe your old life. And he does that. And he says, don't go there anymore. That's not who you are. You are now in Christ. And here's what that looks like. That's your old life. Don't go there anymore. This is who you are and are becoming in Christ. And so he gives us this Galatians 5 verses 22 and 23. And he says, here's this reservoir of Christ's life in you because the fruit of the Spirit collectively represent the very character and nature of Jesus And he's saying there's this reservoir of Christ in you that's ready to be released through your life. This is who you are now. Pause for just a second. Don't you like this list? Wouldn't you like for somebody to describe you and use all nine of these descriptive words? Let me tell you about her. Let me tell you about him. They're a person that is so full of love, so full of joy, so full of peace. And what they're basically saying when they're saying you, you know, when I see you, I get confused. I'm thinking, I see Jesus in you. And he's saying, that's the whole go here. 
And when you start thinking about the fruit of the Spirit, there's kind of four little simple statements I want to put up on the screen that kind of help us to see uh, some observations here. Number one, about, and I've already alluded to this, the fruit of the Spirit is the overflow, the overflow of Christ's life in us. Fruit isn't something that is manufactured or produced. It is a byproduct. It is something that is the result of Christ in my life. It's not something I'm going to go out and be a more loving person. I'm going to go out and I'm going to have more joy. No, it is simply the joy of Christ. It is the peace of Christ. It is the love of Christ. It is the goodness of Christ being in the overflow. Isn't that what fruit is? It's simply the overflow of the life of the tree. That's all it is, or the, the branch. A second observation, you see it up on the screen. It should be, not every once in a while, not just something that's temporary, but it should be an everyday part of our lives. In other words, the fruit of the Spirit is something that should be our lifestyle. This is just who we are. It's not something that happens every once in a while, but the regular norm of your life. And then... <laughs> This sometimes kind of, uh, I think we lose this. The fruit of the Spirit is more for others than it is for ourselves. It's to their benefit that you're loving and peaceful and goodness. It's for the benefit of others. And this one, I think, really deserves a little bit of thought. The fruit of the Spirit is a reflection or a mirror of the condition of your soul. If the fruit of the Spirit isn't present in your life and you... It's not you that are going to see it. It's going to be other people going to see it in you. If they don't see the fruit of the Spirit in your life, and it's not obvious, then something's wrong with the branch. Meaning, hey, it's diseased, it's damaged, something's going on. So the fruit of the Spirit is a mirror, reflection of the condition of your soul. Now, with all of that in mind, as I thought about the fruit of the Spirit, and Josh basically said, pick one, and he said, I'll tell you if it's already been chosen. And so I didn't, I didn't choose one, and him say, nope, that was gone. I immediately went to faithfulness. I immediately said, hey, that's the one I want to take on uh, for the Sunday that I'm there. And so that's the one that we're going we're gonna to take a look at. Before we dive into it, all we've said, it's a Sunday morning, the fans are blowing, and and you've been great to come this morning and listen in. And maybe some of you came and said, oh, Josh, Josh is not here. Ah, I'll wait till he comes back. And you kind of already checked out. I want you to do something with me right now. I want you just to pray a very simple prayer. And the prayer is just, God, I just so need to see what you are doing in my life. And I so need to hear how that you want to produce this fruit in my life. So help me to just listen in today. Not to a, a man's voice, but help me to be keenly riveted into what you're going to say to me today. Okay? And maybe he's already spoken to you. Word of encouragement by somebody who just went over and spoke to you a little bit later. Maybe you saw the kids up here. Wow, that was just something you won't be able to. Will you be able to get that rhyme out of your head the rest of the day? But whatever it is, I want you just to pray that this would not just be another Sunday in August but it would be a life-changing, life-defining moment for you. So with that in mind, let's pray together. Father, um, it is so vital that we, we don't hear, we don't experience something that uh, will come and go, but something that will literally grab a hold of our lives 
And we will leave different than we came. There'll be decisions made. There'll be some brokenness in our lives. There'll be some awareness that will change the trajectory of our lives. So thank you for what you're going to say to us even now, this morning, by the empowering presence, teaching presence of the Holy Spirit who speaks to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I think any of us, when we start thinking about faithfulness, that's something that we appreciate it. Don't you love it when people can be trusted? Don't you love it when people are loyal? Don't you love it when people have your back instead of throwing you under the bus? Don't you love it like it? We, we all love that. And not only that, but we would love to be thought of as that kind of a person, wouldn't we? Uh, it's very interesting when you Google staying faithful, guess what pops up? All kinds of entries and all kinds of links talking about staying faithful in what? Marriage. We all understand what staying, sexual fidelity and marital fidelity, and that's so vital. And we've seen people, maybe you have been one of those persons that have been on the other end of a betrayal of trust, and boy, the pain that it causes. Some of you, though, have experienced the beauty of, of a faithful spouse or a friend or somebody who's been a business partner with you, somebody that was there. It's something that you love, and it's something that you want to be for somebody else. So it's all a good thing. But the truth of the matter is, too often, too often we disappoint people when it comes to faithfulness. Too often we let people down, too often we kind of fade away when it matters. Sometimes we're forgetful, and it's not forgetful because we forgot. We forget on purpose because we're selfish. So what is faithfulness? Let me give you kind of a a working definition that we'll chew on throughout the message this morning, okay? Look at it on the screen. Faithfulness would be this, a stubborn resolve to honor God and to live out our commitments through thick and thin in a trusting and in a trustworthy manner. Now, I want you to see something here about this definition, the stubborn, unrelenting resolve that more than anything else And my faithfulness is out of honoring God and the commitments I've made through thick and thin. What thick and thin means over the long term, one decision after time, one choice after time, one action after time, till you get to the tipping point where over time you've been faithful, you've shown up and you've been trusted, you've been loyal time and time and time and time again, and you reach a tipping point to where everybody goes, that person, well, you can trust them. God says that person is someone who's trusting, who is willing to put their confidence in me. That's a trustworthy person. So it's not something that happens with one act. Faithfulness has to do over the long haul, through thick and thin. So hold on to that definition, and we'll kind of reflect on it in some way. Now, so as you start thinking about this, where can you begin to understand something about faithfulness. And we've given a definition. Let's see if we can look at more of a description of it. So we're going to take you through, and I'm going to go through it in in pretty quick fashion this morning. And as I do, I want to encourage you to kind of listen in. We're going to use one particular place in Scripture in the Bible, an ancient letter that was intensely personal, written by a first century Christ follower whose life still impacts people today because of his faithfulness. Over 2,000 years, no, no, no telling how many billions of people 
his life is affected because he was so faithful in his commitment to Christ. We're talking about Paul. And as he writes this very intense personal letter, it's not in the best of circumstances. In fact, he's in the maritime dungeon prison in Rome. It was, had a reputation for being the absolute worst place. Nobody wanted to go there. That's where Paul was, underneath the ground, this damp, dungy, uh, kind of in rat-infested place. And Paul is there. And he writes, I, Paul, and he sent it to Timothy. And as he's writing to Timothy, and Timothy's not just some kind of, oh, by the way, a friend, acquaintance of Paul. This is like a son to him. He's mentored him. He's coached him. And he's writing this very personal letter to him. And what we're going to look at is the last words Paul ever wrote. In 2 Timothy, it's an ancient letter, very personal to this young son, Timothy. We're going to pick it up in chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. So we're going to follow through, and I'm going to make some comments along the way, and maybe you'll want to write down some questions you might have, and that'll be great, and if you want to pose them afterwards, we'll, we'll take a look at them. So let's take a look here, at, beginning at 1 Timothy, or excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to kind of read through them, and we'll pause as we comment about them, okay? Let's take a look. Here's Paul writing. By the way, just so you get a little more context, Paul's writing this letter because things are bad. Number one, Paul is facing imminent death. Could be in a few weeks, could be in a few months. He'll be beheaded. He'll be beheaded. That, that's a definite. Paul knows that. It's about to happen. Things are bad. Not only that, but there are many Christ followers at that time, for whatever reason, they're bailing on their faith. It's not good. And Paul writes to Timothy and says, look, I'm about ready to pass on. I'm ready to go into my eternal reward. I'm about ready to have that happen. And he says, I'm going to be passing the baton to you. And it's going to be on you. And so Timothy, over and over again throughout this personal letter, he says, you got to be there. you got to stay faithful. And he wraps it up. So let's pick it up, beginning at verse 1. All right? I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. I can't dig into everything that this means, but there is a sense as he's writing this, he's saying, I'm talking about something that is intensely serious. You've got to really pay attention to what I'm about to talk to you about. I'm talking to you about it in such a way that I want you to be alert, Timothy. I want you to be aware of what you're going to be up against. And I'm going to toss in front of you a challenge. This is DEFCON 1. We're in a, a very challenging situation. We've got to stop the drift. And it's on your shoulders, Timothy. And you've got to pay attention to what I'm about to tell you. You've got to pay attention to it. And he says, I want you to always remember, Timothy, that you've got to live today in light of that day. And what he's basically saying to him, and this is a great motivator, he says, you have to take an account that one day you will give an account for your one and only life. You have to remember that. And then he gives him a series of imperatives. He says, preach the word. What he means is, 
And he kind of uses a little other phrase as we get into verse 3. He talks about doing the work of evangelists. Basically what he's saying is, your life has got to be carrying the powerful message of Christ living in you. and His saving work. And, his, and you've got to do it with courage and compassion and with conviction. Using all those phrases. And he says, I, I want you to be engaged with other people with your faith. That's, that's part of the calling. And then he goes on in verse 3. 2 Timothy verse 3, chapter 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into the myths. What he's saying is there's going to be a time when people are going to go, you know, I'm not interested anymore. It's not relevant to my life. I'm not really going to get involved in that. You know, we see the same thing happen today. A lot of so-called nominal Christians today now classify themselves as nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And they're basically saying, you know, I used to, but not anymore. And they're dropping out because of the challenges. It's, it's not something that really has any value to them anymore. And they were cultural Christians to begin with. And Paul's saying, hey, that's going to happen. But then verse 3, or verse, uh, verse uh, 5, but as for you, and it's a phrase he uses all throughout this little ancient letter, as for you, meaning be distinctively different. Always be sober-minded. It means clear-headed. Don't lose your cool. Don't panic. Be discerning in this day and time. And endure suffering. Have a certain resilience about you. That when times get tough and when times get hard, when things begin to move in against you, that it doesn't undermine your faith. I, I couldn't help as I was just looking at that. I'm, I'm older than anybody probably in this room. Um, as I look back across my life, I think about, oh, you know, I, God has been incredibly good to us. But I look back and I think about some of the chapters of my life, our lives, life-threatening disease, parental conflict, uh, a, a, a certain financial instability, relational uh, dissonance, and, and abandonment, a loss of loved one through cancer, not one, but three close family, wounding criticism. Well, we were part of a church plan in Louisville, Kentucky. I was there, and after five years, the church had just exploded in growth, and then all of a sudden, a group of people, when we moved into our own facility, decided, hey, we don't like the way things are anymore. And our mission was very clear. We were going to be a church for people who didn't attend church. We weren't about trying to figure out what made all the Christians feel good. We were on mission. And over a six-month period of time, we had 100 people leave our church. Over 100 people. And I can remember the stinging criticism of people that I had come to love and trust and believe in. Fortunately, the church was growing at such a rate that we had still a kind of a, a plus profit on the other end in terms of size. But over 100 people, over six months, one conversation after another, it ripped me to pieces. And there were many a day when I thought, why in the world are we doing this? Why not just go along to get along? So I've had those moments of false accusations and, and all the things. I could go on, the, and I'm not talking probably to any of you that haven't had similar things. And he's saying, in those moments, endure that, push through that. Don't allow that to cripple your faith. Be tenacious. 
Don't back down. Don't get bitter. Don't quit. Don't act out in a violent manner. Keep your head. Keep cool. Push through and fulfill your ministry, he says. That means just, you know, finish what you started, your ministry, your calling. So what is he saying in these first five verses as I just walk through them? Here it is, and it's a very simple statement. And I hope that will tell you that this will be important to remember. In God's eyes, being faithful is what it means to be successful from God's point of view. Being faithful is what it means to be successful from God's point of view. Wisdom says, leave success and success ratings to God and live your Christian life out of faithfulness rather than bow down to the idol of achievement. Great statements, not mine. Leave the success ratings and rankings to God. If He wants to put you somewhere, let Him put you somewhere. Don't let that be your ambition. Instead, your ambition is, I'm going to be faithful in season, out season, regardless of circumstances. I'm not going to waver in who I am in terms of my life in Christ. I'm not going to do it. Now let me uh, pause here for a second. And this is probably the most, I didn't want to say this. In fact, I just want to kind of skip over this in the message. But I've got to be very honest with you. Are you listening for a second? The odds are against you being faithful. It's not impossible. But the odds are against you. And I say that not only because of what I read here in Paul's letter, as we'll see in a moment. In fact, early in the letter, he says, all those in Asia Minor, all those in that particular area where I poured out my life, all of them, all of them, and I don't know that it's an exaggeration as much as it's a description, all of them deserted me. They abandoned me. When I look back across the span of my life, I think about guys I began with, serving Christ, loving Christ, honoring Christ in both life and ministry. And I recently kind of did a little tabulation. Where are they today? What happened to them? And over half of them, over half of them quit somewhere along the way. They messed up somewhere along the way. They dropped out somewhere along the way. Why am I telling you that? Number one, I hope you'll want to beat the odds. But number two, I want you to hear me say, this is not one of those deals that you can go, yeah, got this. This is going to dig down deep in your soul to be faithful. To be faithful. Let's go a little bit further here. Are you with me still? Okay. Paul now says, I've told you a little bit about this. But he says, "I, I want you to understand something more, and I'm going to use my own life as a personal example. He's not boasting. He's just talking about what God has done through him. Look at verses 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure is come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward me on that day, and not only to me, but all those who love his appearing. What is he saying here? 
Paul's saying, let me just tell you, I want you to look at the past and I want you to look at my future. He said, in the past, here's what it's been like for me. It has been a battle. And I've been like a warrior that's had to deal with all kinds of craziness that's come up against me. It's been like a race. And I have had to push through those moments when I've wanted to quit the race. And it's been like a steward who was entrusted with something that was so precious that you had to take care of it. You had to guard it. He says, I have, I have won the fight. I have fought it. I've won it. I've run the race. And I've finished it. I crossed the finish line. And I have kept the faith. What is Paul saying here? And then he points to his future course. He says, hey, look at the promising reward I've got. It was worth it. It was worth it. I can hear God say, well done, well done, good, and what? Faithful servant. But what is Paul saying here? Let me kind of summarize it this way. Paul is saying, I have lived out God's unique call for my life. I've lived it out. In my lane where he called me to run the race, I have lived it out. Lived it out. And so before describing that a little bit more, let me kind of summarize what this means in another statement you'll see up on the screen. Seeing all of your life as a response to God's call on your life is at the heart of what it means to be faithful, of how to be faithful. It is so vital. This whole thing about faithfulness is not about just getting up every day and saying, God, help me not to mess it up today. As much as the getting up and saying, God, you have, you've got this grand vision upon my life, which has had this gravitational pull that I can't escape. It's captured my heart. And I can't get away from it. And so today, I, I just want to live out your call on my life for this day. And I'm not talking about call in some kind of macro way. I'm talking about, i.e., the call to be a Christ follower, but in a very unique and distinct way that's very personal, that God has put the desire in your heart that he's shown you even through the reading or teaching of Scripture and people counseling you, there was something inside of you that says, yeah, that's what God wired me to do. And through providential circumstances, he's put you in a place in which you begin to understand, yeah, I get this. And he shows you through his creative ways and how he wants you to live out what he's put in your heart. You know what a call is? A call is a history of whispered words are events in which God says, this is what I have for you. And it's dynamic. It's not static. That's what I love about God's call in my life. It's not something like, i got to stay, you know, it's a blueprint, and one page after another. It's every day in a new, dynamic, fresh way. God says, okay, hey, we're going on an adventure today. You're going to be able to live out your call today that I put on your life. That is an anchor to my soul. That helps me to make decisions before I have to make decisions. Because of God's call on my life. So let me, let me just remind you this morning that every single one of you, God has a call on your life. It's mysterious, but it's unique and distinct. Every single one of you. And if you grab a hold of that, pursue that, embrace that, let that be the umbrella that shapes all of your life under which you live. 
it will keep you on track. Instead of a, being a meteorite that fla- you know, flames out, there is this constancy, there's this faithfulness, there's this stubborn commitment, refusal to give up. And you honor the commitments day after day, choice after choice. You know, you can't determine how you will end your life and how your life will end. Brother, let me put it that way. That's a whole lot better instead of ending your life. You can't determine how your life will end. You don't know that. You don't control that. But you can determine how you finish. How you finish. That's what Paul is saying here. My mother was diagnosed with cancer in April of 2004. It already metastasized to the point that all they basically did is says, we're going to throw some chemo at it. We don't think it's going to do any good. But we're going to throw some chemo at it and we hope that somehow maybe to slow you down and give you a few more months. And as I watched my mom go through that and was there beside her, I began to get kind of a little bit put out with the people at the hospital because they almost treated her as if uh, there's nothing we can really do for her. We'll go through the routine. But, and there was just, from my perspective, a, a lack of compassion. And I, was, I had written out this letter to the doctor, her oncologist. And I showed it to my mom. And I said, hey, mom, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to do anything wrong, but I, I'm just really bothered by this. I've tried to write it, but to be very honest, she looked at the letter, and it wasn't anything, you know, combative. I was just drawing attention to a few things that I'd seen in the chemo unit. And mom said to me, she smiled, she knew, and she said, son, you have to understand, and she named the doctor's name, he's not a Christ follower, and I want him to so see Jesus in my life that somewhere along the way, his heart would be opened. Her pastor's son was kind of rebuked. Here was my 70-something-year-old mom dying way too early. She loved life so much. And here she was, just weeks before she died, saying, hey, I know my end is coming, but here's how I want to finish. That's God's call on my life. Life lesson, never will forget it. Let's go a little bit further here. And I'm going to go through this rather rapidly, and I'm going to name, we're going to talk about, we're going to mention some names, read some names. They're all-time Bible greats. In fact, if you're thinking about naming a child, you're going to get some great names here. Let's look at it, all right? So I'm going to start off that way, but it's going to get good as we go through it. Pick one. Do your best to come to me soon. The word come there is the word takio, from which we get our word, not taco, but taxi. Hurry up. For Demas, in love with this present world, we're going to come back to him in a minute, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, meaning I've sent them out. I'd love for them to stay, but there's work to be done. Luke alone was with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful for, for me, to me for ministry. Those names are, okay, how about this one? Tychius, I have sent to Ephesus. That would be a great name. Call him Ty. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. And then he names a guy again that we'll come back to in a moment. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm, and the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. And then down in verse 19. 
Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Tromephus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before men There again is that word. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Puddins. Well, what a great name. I thought that would be your all-time. Choose that one for your next child. We're going to call him Puddins, all right? Puddins and Linus and Claudia and all the other brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Now, you're saying, why are you listing all these names? Well, they're just kind of throwaway verses. You know what's striking to me? Paul is facing impending execution. And he's not out there some bravado, lone ranger, I got this. What is he doing? He's thinking about all those circle of relationships. People have been a part of his life. And he looks back at him and he just starts. He lists 19 names in 13 verses. 19. And he pulls them up. And we, I don't have the time to dig into it. But if you were to look behind every one of those names, and I'll just use a few instances. For example, he talked about Luke. Only Luke is with me. He's not saying, yeah, only Luke is here. In a kind of a negative complaining way, he's saying, yeah, old Luke's here. Luke had a promising career as a physician. And he gave it up so he could be by Paul's side. He put self-interest aside and he was sacrificially there for Paul. Amazing. And then you take somebody like old Nesiphorus. What a name. But you know what you read about old Nesiphorus? His name brings, breathe life into me. When nobody was standing with Paul, Onesiphorus comes along and his, he was there. And he just built him right back up. He refreshed me. That's what his word means. Then, there, then there's Mark. He mentions Mark. And I don't know if you know the story about Mark. His name is John Mark, actually. And he was with Paul, a companion. And boy, when things got tough, Mark bailed out. And he wasn't faithful. And sometime later, he decided, hey, I want to join up with you again, Paul. And Paul said, nope, I can't depend on you. He went his own way, and then years later, Paul's writing his last moments. He said, will you find John Mark? He's profitable to me. He's talking about the restoration when people destroy you, and even when you're not faithful. He's saying, I want him back. He's proven himself. Look at this circle of friends around Paul. Think of what came out of that. The Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts, the Gospel of Mark. Churches all over the then-known world, it was... Titus and Crescens, people who stood with him, who shared a common vision. Let me ask you a question. Who are the people right now in your life? Who are the people in your life? Who are the people that are standing with you? Are they the right kind of people? Are they the people that will help you be faithful? Are those the ones that are there? Paul had those kind of people in his life. And the message is pretty clear. Here it is, summary statement again. You can't be faithful without the support of others. You can't. I know here at Charles River, we're constantly talking about what? Hey, get in a group. Is that because, hey, this is an initiative of church, so we want you to be in it? No. 
Look at the way you're sitting this morning. You're sitting in what? Rows, right? Sitting in a rows, and that means what? Shoulder to shoulder. Let me ask you something. How much can you really get to know somebody shoulder to shoulder? You come in on Sunday morning, nobody knows anything much about you. In fact, nobody knows what you were like on the way to church this morning. Nobody knows what's going on in your life. I love the way Andy Stanley says it. Life is so much better in circles. Not in rows, because nobody knows in rows. Because you're shoulder to shoulder. You get in a circle, it's face to face. People can know and see and experience and be there with and for you. That's so vital. And when you start living in isolation, you start living just like this on a Sunday morning without getting within a circle of people that share life together with you, that you love and, and are loved and you serve and are served and you're, you know and you are known, and you get into that kind of connection with other people. If you don't have that, you're especially vulnerable to drop out. It's absolutely essential. You know, my, Gail and I's biggest, um, biggest challenge with what we do right now because we travel and we're gone so much and I have to be in different places around the city is we're, we don't have a community group. We don't get to do that. And it's kill, it kills us because that's all we've ever known. Small circles of people. So I want to encourage you when Charles Rivers starts talking about, hey, be a part of a group. It's not because they want you to be a part of a program. It's for your own safety. I like how Hebrews chapter 3 kind of summarizes it. And I'm going to give a paraphrase of a particular verse there if I can. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse, again, 19. Or verse 12, rather. Here's what it says. See to it then, brothers and sisters, that none of you, none of you turn away from the living God that you're tricked by sin and drift away from the faith. See to it that, that to one another, make sure you're checking in on one another. Because the natural tendency is a what? Drift. Let me ask you something. When you drift, do you ever drift into anything good? No. I always drift into what? Something not so good. And our natural tendency is what? To drift. But if you're in community, people can see what's going on in your life. And if they care, they can say, hey, I know what's going on. Hey, can we talk about it? How can we be there with and for you? How can we do that? It makes all the difference. Now, there was the Demas. People will disappoint you. They'll leave you in the lurch. And there are the Alexanders who will great the inevitable opposition. But you can't look at people who disappoint you and you can't allow the opposition to keep you from being in a circle of friends. Don't say, well, I've been hurt, I've been disappointed, has it worked out for me? Don't get that mindset. Take the risk. Sit in circles. Invite people into your life. Be there for others. You can't be faithful without the support of others. Paul knew that. Well, finally here, verses 17 through 18, and I want to close with this. Here's what he writes. 
But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through, that through one, through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So it was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and to bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul says, you know, I love the people around me. I got that sense of call, and I know in God's eyes to be successful is be faithful. I'm, I'm, I understand that. But here's been the game changer for me. <laughs> it was God's faithfulness and being reminded of God's faithfulness that made me faithful. Knowing that he was a God who keeps his promises. A God who will never abandon me, who is always for and with me even when others aren't. When no one stands with me, when he was brought before as a grand jury, stood there all along, Paul had poured out his life, no one was with him. But then Paul says, but the Lord was. And he took care of me. Here's the final, and I think probably the most important truth, and I don't want you to miss it. And I think it's vital to make sure you understand where true faithfulness comes from, the source of it. Knowing God can be trusted is ultimately what makes it possible to be faithful. Knowing God can be trusted is ultimately what makes it possible to be faithful. Gil and I were doing a crazy thing the other day, and we're talking, (laughs) it's crazy to talk this way, but we were doing it when you get to our age, every once in a while it kind of slips into your mind. So what do you, what do you, what do you want at your funeral? And we were talking, um, we got on that conversation, and how do you, you know, and she was, we were talking about different things. I said, you know, how we want it to be, and what she wants, and what I want, and all that kind of stuff. And, and she said, you know what song I want sung at my funeral? I said, what's that? She says, I want Sarah Grove's song, He's Always Been Faithful. All I have needed, His hand hath provided morning by morning new mercies I see so you wake up and just as the sure as the sunrise God is loading in a fresh batch of his loving tender kindness that he wants to pour out in your life in that day as you make your way through it I've been reading through Lamentations this summer Part of my reading is I'm reading through it. It's a, it's a very challenging read because it talks about the death of a nation. It talks about affliction. It talks about the craziness that's going on in this world. And then he comes kind of out of it. In chapter 3, it's been one verse after another about how crazy things are. And then he says this in Lamentations 3.21, Yet this I call to mind... Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. Call to mind. God, I know you'll be with me. I know you'll be for me. I've seen you. I remember it. I recall it. And I lean into it. God's faithfulness is ultimately what allows us and makes us faithful. So how would I summarize this morning's message? 
one last word if I could give it to you. Here it is. Keep on being faithful to your last breath. Keep on being faithful to your last breath. Let's pray together. Father, our tendency is in life to put our trust and confidence in what really doesn't deserve our trust and confidence, our profession, our financial uh, status, uh, a relationship. And all along you're saying, I can be trusted. Trust me. Remain faithful. Remain confident. Even when you see a situation that seems hopeless, lean in, open the door to the hope that I have promised you. So this morning, maybe there needs to be a hard, honest assessment, Father, of each of our lives to say, am I living a faithful life? Am I living out my call? What am I pursuing in terms of success? Do I have the right kind of people in my life? Am I remembering God's faithfulness? Father, use this message so that one day, someday, people will look at us and they will go, look, now there's a faithful person. There's someone who has kept the faith. God, help us to live that out in each of our lives. And for those here who do not know Christ today, may they know that you will always be faithful to them and may that be what opens their heart to receive the gift of your son on the cross who the ultimate promise was, I'm for you and here's proof. Thank you for the gospel that transforms us. In Jesus' name, amen.